0: Nick Simmons, welcome to the morning shakeout podcast. yeah, thank you for having me So what have you been up to man? Um, you're retired from track and field you've been dabbling in marathons. How is the retired athlete life treating you these days you know it's it's exactly like my life was you know prior to my retirement
1: from the track, except now when I wake up in the morning, I can do whatever run or workout I feel like rather than what's written for me on a sheet of paper, and that freedom has been so nice. I finally know what it means to just go out for a run because I love to run rather than because it it fits into the training schedule. And some days I wake up, I don't feel like running at all. I take the day off and that's okay too. But for the most part, I run Monday through Friday, anywhere from four to 10 miles.
0: Okay. And throughout your career, you've always been part of a training group. You were part of Oregon Track Club Elite um, in Eugene for a while. Most recently with the Brooks Beasts, based out of Seattle. Is it a little weird to be flying solo these days?
1: No, I always
0: like training on my on my own. And
1: when I was younger, I needed the people around me to keep me accountable. And then as I got better, I needed people around me to push me. Um, and then towards the end of my career, I just really embraced training on my own. And even though there's you know dozens or hundreds of runners that I could run with here in Eugene, I really love just being in my own head for those. 30 minutes to, you know, to an hour in the morning. And um, it kind of is my time away from everything to just put my thoughts in order. It's um, it's funny, I, I'll, I'll sometimes get in kind of a lazy streak and I'll take a few days off. And when I'm in the office at RunGum HQ, I just don't think as clear. And the only variable that changes is whether I get my workout in the morning or not. And whatever it is, if it's chemical, if it's the endorphins, or if it's just calming my brain down, Getting it, And it only has to be like 30 minutes, but getting some sort of endurance uh, exercise in in the morning allows me to think much, much clearer throughout the day.
0: And when you head out to run, you just alluded to the fact that, you know, it feels good. It's probably not as strict as it was when you were training as an athlete. But do you still feel like you've got some of those professional athlete tendencies when you head out for a run or if you're doing some kind of specific workout these days, even though it's not getting ready for an 800 meter race? Yeah,
1: I think I'm smart about my training. You know, I I know a lot of amateurs and they don't really even know where to begin. Uh, You can't run competitively for 20 years without having that kind of uh, that knowledge about how to train. And so, you know, I structure my weeks accordingly to make sure that I'm not overdoing it on the front end or back end or on any one day. Um, You know, I vary my mileage quite a bit from day to day and, and I still know that I need to stretch and I still know I need to hydrate and do all the little things just to stay healthy, even though I'm not training at that level anymore. You still have to have certain things that, that allow you to stay healthy at any level of training. And the one thing I think that really has never left me is to be to be a great runner, to a certain extent, you have to be a slave to the numbers. You have to embrace this idea of, okay, I need to hit this mi- weekly mileage. And in order to do that, I have to break that down into X amount of runs. And even though at my peak, I was doing 70 miles a week in nine runs, and I could never do that today, I still have that same mentality. and I say to myself, okay, Nick, you have to get 40 miles in this week. How are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to have to break that down into five runs. 40 go by, divided by five is eight miles. Well, I don't want to do eight miles a day, so, but if I have a long run, you know, and I do all the math, of mm-hmm. course, and sometimes the long run falls on a Friday, sometimes it falls on a Saturday, sometimes it falls on a Sunday, but I... I love that feeling of getting to Sunday evening and looking back over my weekly mileage and saying, wow, I did it. I hit the number that I set for myself. It's a small goal, but it's a very satisfying goal that ultimately builds towards my my goal that's really important to me. And in this case, that's breaking three hours in the marathon.
0: And we're going to get to that here in a little bit. That'll be your second marathon at Eugene, which is coming up in a couple months. You ran Honolulu uh, just a couple months back in December, I believe. And yeah, December 10th just missed three hours. You were three hours and 35 seconds or so. Take me back to that day, how it went uh, based on your expectations going into it and how it ultimately shook out.
1: Well, I, I didn't really have a lot of expectations because the longest run I'd ever done up to that point was a 15 miler. Um, and my half marathon PR came six weeks earlier at the Newport half and I ran one twenty four. but like, you know, one half marathon and one 15 miler isn't exactly a 26.2 monster. So I was like, I I really don't know what's going to happen. I think I can run hard for 20 miles and then the last six miles are what they are. And that's kind of how I ran it. I was, uh, I was on pace to break three the entire time. Well, I actually negative split the, the, the halves, but, um, you know, around mile 15, 16, I knew I was going to break three if I just maintained that pace. But anyone who's run Honolulu knows there's a giant hill at mile 24. And uh, it knocked me down. I went from running 645s pretty consistently to about, I think it was an 810. Um, that mile. And that's what cost me. But that's uh, what m- makes me hungry to come back to Eugene and, and give it another try. I know I can break three. I just have to tweak my training a little bit, maybe a different pair of shoes. but Better weather would help, and certainly a flatter course will help
0: what would you, or what are you doing differently in training right now for Eugene than you did leading up to Honolulu? Well, just by the nature of how much time
1: I have, I I announced Honolulu about five or six months out. So I had this in my mind that I needed to train that long. You don't really need to train five or six months for a marathon. One can, but for me, that was too long a buildup. So I started training on Jan one for Eugene and that'll give me exactly a four month buildup, which I think is about right. Um, I'm going to wear different shoes. You know, the shoes that I wore were something that I would wear to run a lot of miles in. But that's not necessarily what you want on race day. Um, it rained really hard in the middle of the race. And that made my shoes even heavier with with being waterlogged. Um, so, you know, if, if, if Eugene can hold off on the rain, that would be awfully helpful. Um, and And then, you know, just being... That much more prepared on the day. I was really nervous going into Honolulu. I I was really afraid that I'd get to mile 20 and have to walk it in and be very embarrassed that I couldn't physically run 26.2 miles. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, if I show up on the start line, I can finish any marathon. It's just a matter of getting there and being tenacious. And I want to show up to Eugene Marathon, not just hungry to run another marathon, but excited and ready to set a, a personal best.
0: So take me back one more time to Honolulu and being on the starting line. Did you have the same kind of nerves on that start line as you do when you're stepping up uh, on the track for a big 800-meter race? Uh,
1: In some ways, yes, but in most ways, no. Um, The one commonality was on both the 800-meter start line and on the marathon start line, the thought is, this is going to hurt really bad. (laughs) And they do, you know, in different ways, but they both really, really hurt, and there's no way around that. But there's another aspect on the 800-meter start line was this matters. This is extremely important for my career, for my family. There's sometimes potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line. Mm-hmm. You know, it matters. It's really important that you have a good showing. Um, on the marathon, it was doing. I was doing it for myself. I wasn't doing it for sponsors or for money or for anybody else. It was just I wanted to go prove to myself that I could run 26.2 miles. So... It was, it was a lot less pressure. And and pressure equals nerves in a, in those kind of situations. And it was just fun. I had my brother-in-law and my sister by my side. And I was you know really cool to run with my brother-in-law for the first half. And it was just a really nice day. The entire Run Gum team was out there. And my business partner, Coach Sam, is a big dude. He's about 240 pounds. And he ran the entire thing also. And I think the longest run he had ever done in prior to Honolulu was about six miles. So really cool that, uh, that we were able to have that, that moment together.
0: Let's geek out for a second. You had mentioned the shoes that you wore at Honolulu, and that's one thing that you'll change heading into Eugene. What did you wear for shoes and what was it about them that, I don't want to say backfired on you, but that you didn't exactly like all that much?
1: So I wore the Brooks Levitate. Um, I was under contract with Brooks and and knew I would be wearing a pair of their shoes, and they had just released the Levitate. And so I was excited to wear a shoe because it made sense from a marketing standpoint that I'd wear the the newly released shoe. I think the Levitate, the way I like to describe it, it's the SUV of Brooks' lineup. It's not the fastest, and it's not the, the sturdiest. It's not the pickup truck. It's not the race car. It is the SUV, and it's good if you want one pair of shoes to do everything. Then I would recommend the Levitate. But if you're going to, you know, go on a on a big journey, I don't know that I necessarily want an SUV. Um, and if I want to go fast, I certainly don't want one. So for me, as I think about Eugene, I want something. I want to train in something bigger and I want to race in something smaller, if that makes sense. And if you follow me on Instagram, at Nick Simmons, I've actually been testing out a dozen pair of shoes this week. Everything from Hoka to Skechers, Under Armour, um, you name it, I've tested them. And I'm trying to find that perfect shoe for me that will allow me to break three hours. It's got to be light, but it's got to have enough support to to keep a
0: (laughs) 170-pound former half-miler going for 26 miles. Not that you've narrowed it down at this point, but what are you liking so far? You spent most of your career running in either Nike or Brooks and not really exposed to much else. Have your eyes been opened a little bit as you've been testing the waters with different types of shoes out there?
1: You know, it's so funny. You say mostly, but literally for 12 years, I only wore Nikes or then Brooks. I mean, not not for a single run in 12 years did I ever venture outside of those two brands. And it has been so cool these last few weeks. Uh, to try different brands and see what's out there. There's so much technology and concepts that have evolved over the last decade that I never really got to try. This Maximal movement from Hoka is fantastic. I ran 12 miles in a pair of Clifton's this morning and I thought they were amazing. Um, Skechers has a really, really great trainer out. Um, The Go Run 7 is arguably the most beautiful, simple, perfect trainer that I've ever touched. Um, other shoes that I like. Under Armour's got this new hover technology that I think Mm -hmm. is fantastic and looks cool. Um, On Running sent me a few pairs of shoes and I almost thought they were so beautiful I didn't even want to take them (laughs) out of the box. I'm like, this is just artwork. I can't get these dirty. Um, You know, and I I go onto my Instagram, you can see all of them. But it's just, it was really cool to try all the different styles and, and, uh, and the different technologies out.
0: All right, I'm going to beat this marathon horse just a few more times, and then we'll move on to some other topics. But from a training standpoint, I'm assuming you're writing your own programs right now. What are you basing that off of as a former 800-meter runner who never really raced more than – you know occasionally you jump in a 3k or maybe some cross country but you've never raced like more than an hour um prior yeah. to prior to before Honolulu and then certainly through Honolulu and now getting ready for for Eugene so how are you how are you writing your schedule and how are you making decisions as far as what your mileage should be what workouts you should be doing how long you should be running and all of that
1: well you know Danny Mackey uh, head coach of the Brooks Beasts he Helped me through Honolulu, and he was massively helpful because I had no idea what to do. Um, And then going into Eugene, I I said, Coach Mackey, I I don't know what kind of time or energy I'm going to have to devote to this Eugene marathon. It's kind of have to be, you know, almost like I mentioned about my training. Wake up in the morning and see what you got time for, see how you feel. And so he's his workouts I still have, and I'm going to apply them. Um, as i get closer to the to the marathon but for the most part like i said i'm just picking a number that i want to hit by the end of the week and figuring out how to do that now i try to do an interval session on tuesdays and i try to do a long run on fridays with a tempo in the middle of it and monday and wednesdays are my lifting days with an easy recovery run and, and thursdays my short run with massage and i take weekends off so i wouldn't say that that's the ideal way to train for a marathon but given all my obligations, you know, as the CEO of RunGum, as a guy who loves to get out on the weekends and play, um it's working for me. It really is, and I'm getting faster and faster each week.
0: I read that if you break 3 hours at Eugene, it will possibly be the last race that you ever run. Why is that? Yeah,
1: and you know, it's so funny you're asking because I haven't told anybody this. Um and I'm going to be a little bit cryptic just cuz I don't want to ruin my own surprise, but um an opportunity's come my way that is going to be possibly one of the the greatest things that I'll ever do in my life, and I I need to be all in on that. And on May first, I'll, I'll reveal what that exactly is and why I need to be all in. But for me to be successful at anything, whether it was eight hundred meter running or as an entrepreneur or as a, as a family man, you got to go all in. And you know, I remember my coach um, in college. He said, "If you buy in." Um, I'm going to make you a great runner. And that's exactly what he did. And so I want to buy into this next stage of my life and I want to be all in and I want to be great at it. Um, And again, I'll I'll, I'll unveil those plans on May 1. But uh, the Eugene Marathon takes place on April 29. And if I break three hours, I will have accomplished every single... Item on my running bucket list. You know, all my goals have been attained except for one, which was to win an Olympic medal. But I can't can't go back and tackle that (laughs) one again. But to break three hours is something that I'd like to do, and then it would kind of, especially given the fact that it takes place on Hayward Field, where my pro career was launched. Mm -hmm. It brings the whole thing full circle. So I kind of love this idea of finishing on Hayward Field and throwing my my biceps up on the finish line one last time and and letting that be the final chapter of the Nick Simmons pro running career and then on May 1st we switch
0: we switch gears and do you think you'll still run after Eugene even if you don't compete at all in road races or marathons or or what have you Absol- do you think absolutely. running will still be a part of your life yeah
1: yeah but you know i've i've been given a lot of good medical advice one of the things that i'm so fortunate to have is great medical um And they said, you know, Nick, after 20 years of competitive running, you've really done some damage to your body, your knees, your hips, everything is just so rigid and locked from from this repetitive movement. Mm -hmm. You need to take two or three years and rebuild yourself from the ground up. And they've advised me not to run a step for a couple of years. I don't know that I can do that, but I certainly think I can scale it way back, get more into lifting, get more into, I hate to say this, yoga. I'm not a huge fan of yoga, but I know my body needs it and i think you know as i as i flip the the page and we go into this new chapter i think running will take a, a not a back seat but a smaller part of my life but will will always be integral because i i just genuinely love to run if i could i'd run 10 miles every single morning but my body won't allow me to do that anymore unfortunately
0: so looking ahead to this post running life of yours i know you can't reveal what you're going to share with everyone on may 1st but what else are you focusing your energies into obviously run gum a company that Mm -hmm. you started while you were still competing as an athlete now are devoting even more time to it as as ceo and i know you've got plenty of other interests in the outdoors um you've been an advocate in track and field let's talk about a few of those things starting with run gum and one you know, you started that company while you were still training hard and competing at a world-class level, which I can't imagine is an easy thing to do. Why did you decide to do that when you did it? You know, I turned 30 and I'd always had this idea that
1: this is just a huge gift that could end at any second, right? Pro running typically lasts for the average runner three or four years, maybe on, on the best case scenario. And so from the age of 22 on, I was like, just be grateful for every day that you get and always know that this gravy train could end tomorrow. And when I turned 30, it really sunk in that I maybe at at best case scenario had two or three more years left. And uh, the idea as an adult, the only way I'd really made money was through running. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, that's going to end pretty quick. I need to figure out a way to make more money. And my business partner and coach, Coach Sam, we had had this idea for a, Basically, we, we called it a dehydrated energy drink. And we said, we love energy drinks. We love the way they make us feel, but they destroy our stomachs. Let's figure out a way to get rid of all the sugar and calories and water and crap that we don't want and just keep the energy blend. And it wasn't until the summer of 2014 when I had a, what could have been a career-ending injury that we had the time and energy to bring a product to market. I mean, if we spent 12 hours a day, six days a week for six months creating what is now RunGum. And uh, that was in the summer of fourteen, And we launched in October 14th of 2014.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the product and what went into it. I mean, your background, correct me if I'm wrong, is in biochemistry. Um, so you've got some knowledge in, in that field. Who else helped you out besides Coach Sam? And like, what were your initial objectives from a product standpoint um, in creating RunGum?
1: Well, it's a product that was really born out of necessity. I wanted this for myself. I said, I can train harder. I can work harder. um, It's going to be great in competition. Caffeine's been shown to have performance enhancing effects in endurance athletics. I said, this is what I want and need. Um, But believe it or not, making a, a great tasting, great chewing piece of compressed energy gum is very difficult. And we contacted dozens of gum manufacturers before we figured out how to, before we found a partner that could do it could do it well. And um, they helped us with r and D. Uh, a a little boutique marketing agency called Hanson Dodge Creative, who I'd worked with, mm-hmm. helped out with the naming and the tagline and the packaging. And then one day, you know, we kind of had the packaging, we had the product. And Sam and I sat down and wrote some very large checks. And we ordered a million pieces of this stuff and had it shipped to Eugene. Um, we... Again, my background's in running, his background's in real estate development. We don't know a lot about CPG or consumer press goods, packaged goods. Um, we hired a, a business manager, a guy by the name of Nathan Woods, who is currently our COO. I really call him the brains of the operation. You know, I'm, I'm good at talking about the story and I'm good at a lot of things, but the day to day operations, you don't want it in my hands. <laughs> so we hired Nathan to be our business manager, and, and he is truly the brains of the operation that keeps the whole thing running.
0: And aside from this product that is being widely used by athletes, you've developed an ambassador team around run gum. It's almost become a little bit of a kind of a culture lifestyle thing. Let's talk about that side of it and how people have rallied behind not only the product but the but the brand and what it stands for.
1: for us from day one, our mission was two twofold, and we we have it up on the wall here at h q we say Run Gum is designed and is here to fuel and inspire people to run the day. And by that, we mean we want people. We, I mean, I know how busy everybody is. Trust me, I'm busy from 6 a.m. to midnight. Um, I was in college. I know how busy collegians are. Um, I, I just see people working so hard. They want to be fit and they want to be good at their job and they want to be good for their families and they want, you know, and there's just never enough hours in the day. If we can give you a little boost, just enough to get you out the door for that evening run, or just enough you know to make you a little bit sharper in your business meeting, um, that's how we're gonna fuel you and if we can inspire you through the 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 people that we work with or um the content that we put out on in our emails or on social, um we want to inspire you just to live the absolute fullest life that you can live and that's that's our goal. So when you say that we're developing a brand or a lifestyle, we absolutely are trying to do that we want. Everybody, whether you're a nurse working a 24-hour shift, um, a busy business person running into a meeting, or someone at the gym trying to get the best hour lift in that they can get, we want everybody to just feel fueled and inspired to be the best that they can be in that moment. And it, it's funny because we launched this in 14. And sure, it was it was cute and, and a novelty item, I guess, in Run Specialty. But to see it branch out of Run Specialty, we got picked up by REI. We got picked up by 7-Eleven. Um, we're in talks with a couple other big chains to roll out nationwide. You know, that's that's the most rewarding part for me to see that we're able to touch so many different lives and and hopefully for the better.
0: As much as you'd be willing to talk about it right now, how do you see the company and the brand evolving from a a product and a marketing standpoint in the next few years? Will you stay focused on... Making this one product the best that it can be, and offering different flavors, or are there plans to expand into other areas? Great question, and it's something that we talk
1: about internally a lot. Uh, you look at a product like, um, um just throwing out some names like Onit or uh, Amazing Grass, or you know, there's these these really really successful companies that have a hundred different products, and that's one business model. You could also look at a company like 5-Hour Energy or Red Bull that have one product, maybe a few different flavors, Mm -hmm. but they're everywhere. I aspire to be the latter. I would rather sell one product that's a phenomenal product, build a great brand around it, and then just make sure that it's everywhere. And that's kind of what we're being tested as uh, in 7-Eleven regionally. We're in 77-Elevens on the Hawaiian Islands, and we're positioned right next to 5-Hour Energy. Um, five hour energy there, I think MSRP or, or it sells for about $3. Mm -hmm. We sell for $2 there. So it's a great energy product. That's two thirds the price of of the nearest competitor. And if we can be even a 10th of the places that five hour is, we'll be a massively successful company.
0: Right on. Let's talk about business in general for a little bit. Have you always been entrepreneurially minded and, I ask that, looking back at um, your career, not only as a professional athlete and what you've had to do to, you know, to run Nick Simmons, the the athlete business, um, and growing Run Gum here uh, over the last few years, but even prior to that, I think you owned some tanning salons for a while uh, in the Oregon area when you first got started. Have you always sort of been interested in in business and trying different things and all of yeah.
1: that? Yeah. So I think my my earliest rem- Memory of being an entrepreneur i was uh, I was probably about ten or eleven, and I love fly fishing. If you guys follow me on social, you know i 'm obsessed with, with fly fishing as well and My dad taught me that, and he taught me how to tie flies from an early age and I think I must have been like i said ten or eleven and I started a company called boone 's bugs my middle name 's Boone, and I tied flies for my dad 's friends, and these were horrible flies. But I had little business cards and I, I did my best to tie them up real good. And I'd sell these flies to my dad's friends. And that was my first business, I guess you could say. And then like you said, when I when I graduated college, I incorporated Nick Simmons LLC that handled all my running earnings. Um, I did start a chain of tanning salons with my, my business partner and coach Sam. We had never tanned, but we saw this as massive, massive business in, in the Pacific Northwest. And interesting side note, we actually sold those salons to fund the startup of RunGum. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I love entrepreneurial business. I, I just love it's. I, I liken it uh, to playing a board game or putting a puzzle together. You have to put all the puzzle pieces in just right. Um, and if they're in the right place, it creates this wonderful picture and and sometimes we're missing a puzzle piece and we have to go find it and figure out how to make it right. Uh, staffing particularly is, is challenging because you have to have just the right puzzle piece in there. But uh, it's been a really rewarding experience as well. And the fact that I get to do it with my best friend uh, makes it that much easier.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that relationship. When did you first meet Coach Sam? And when did things sort of flip from coach-athlete relationship to let's start thinking about starting some businesses together.
1: Yeah, I showed up to Willamette University in the fall of 2002. And Coach Sam uh, was semi-retired at the time uh, as a real estate developer. He was 36. And he was helping out with the Willamette track program, which was his alma mater. And he was the sprints and conditioning coach there. And I, I just he, he would like shout at me when I was crushing workout sometimes, you know, like, look at this guy go. And I was I was good, you know, as a freshman for a D3 program. And he was excited about that. And the other coaches were excited. Um, and he just seemed like he really had his his stuff together. He had this beautiful wife and three beautiful children that he'd bring out to the track sometimes. And I'm like, this guy has really got it figured out. And so I kind of just spent more and more time with him and got to know him. And when I graduated college, um, I joined the Oregon Track Club Elite, and Coach Gagliano, who was the coach at the time, said, "Nick, what do you need to be successful?" I said, "Gags, I'm pretty simple. I just need a good pair of shoes, and I need Coach Sam around." And so at that time, Gags invited Coach Sam to come to all the practices, and Sam would make it for you know at least one a week, and traveled with me to all my big races. He, you know, every single World Championship, every single Olympic Games. You know, in the most domestic races, he was there. And so I, I think initially he was more of a mentor, best friend. You know I, I use the term coach loosely because he's actually never written a workout for me in the 15 years that I've known him. Um, but okay. he's just he's the he's the puppet master, right? He he controlled every single angle of my career so that I could focus on just running. He was the one that that acted as the liaison between my family, my agent, my doctors, my you know massage therapist, the the contract. Uh, shoe companies. I mean, he did. He handled everything so that I could just run. And I think it wasn't until my mid twenties that I said, you know, Coach, I'm bored. I think I'm gonna go back to school. And he said, Well, you can pay a university fifty grand for an MBA, or or we can just go start a business ourselves. And so again, that's him managing that career, saying the athlete is not being mentally stimulated. I need to take care of the the mental side of this kid too. And we did that through entrepreneurial business. So every day I woke up, I got to stimulate myself physically through training, and I got to stimulate myself mentally through uh, entrepreneurial business. And truly, it is it is through entrepreneurial business that I really saw a breakthrough to the next level as an athlete. Um, you know, in my mid to late twenties, I really reached my peak, and I I don't think I could have done that with certainly without Coach Sam, but I don't think I could have done it without being an entrepreneur either.
0: So let's go down that road a little bit about the business of being a professional athlete. When you got out of school at Willamette, you're D3, you're a good runner, but you're not, you know, you're certainly not making national teams yet right out of school. Um, you're far from being nationally ranked. You join, you know, the Oregon track club elite. Uh, you do make some big improvements and, you know, ultimately prove your worth as an athlete, making two Olympic teams, you know, you're a world championship medalist. You've won multiple national titles and, I mean, those folks generally in, in the track and field world are doing pretty well financially or at least can make a living out of it. Um, but you sort of went beyond that. You started thinking not just as a, a performance-minded athlete, but you were sort of doing things, I don't want to say in the in the background, that may not be the best way to to – Kind of classify it, but you were, you know, you were thinking like outside of the box, I think, in terms of how you were marketing yourself, um, the personal brand that you were creating. Was that a deliberate decision, or did you see that at some point, if you wanted to have a sustainable career at this, it was more than just performance? You had to do all of these, you know, other things to make yourself valuable to potential sponsors um, and to grow a fan base.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think I got to go back to coach Sam who from day 1 the day I graduated college he said you need to make the Nick Simmons brand so strong that companies can't help but work with you. He goes you can't ever get a DUI. You you can't be caught with drugs. You can't, you know, be flippant in interviews. You've got to be who you are, which is a, you know, a, a kid who worked his butt off from Boise, Idaho and and went the D3 route and became an Olympian. And that's a great story in and of itself. But he told me to make this brand as strong as I could um, and build it authentically. And at the time, I had no idea what he was talking about. I'm like, yeah, sure, coach. I'm just going to go run. So (laughs) (laughs) please leave me alone. Uh, But in my mid-20s, again, when I started to understand how branding works and PR and marketing and really embracing this idea of myself as an independent contractor owning my own business, that's when I started saying, okay, how am I going to define my brand? what is the nick simmons brand what is that about it can't just be about hiding in a cabin for 11 months and and showing up and running a race really well and then you know ignoring all my fans the rest of the year so i kind of said okay what are the things that are important to me my family getting outdoors being active um running international travel and i started really kind of cultivating the who, and I I don't even know if cultivating is the right word. I just started sharing more of myself Mm -hmm. with people in interviews and online. And naturally, uh, people said, well, Hey, I like to fish. I'm going to follow this guy. I don't even care that he runs, but I'm gonna follow him for the fish pictures he puts up, you know, or, or people said, isn't that that crazy guy that runs the beer mile? I like the fact that this Olympian doesn't take himself so seriously that he can't have a beer once in a while. So it wasn't that I was trying to like script this idea of, a character caricature of who I was. I was just willing to share a lot of myself with my fans. And, you know, you can see a lot of athletes like that. I think probably the perfect example of that is Lolo Jones. Lolo Jones does not have a world medal. She does not have an Olympic medal from outdoors. That is uh, the world's, but she has a half million followers because she's willing to put so much of herself out there for her fans. And a lot of young women and men want to follow her identify with who she is as a person. And she's done an incredible job building the
0: Lolo Jones brand. do you think track and field athletes by and large can do a better job of, of doing that not only for themselves, but in order for people to take the sport more seriously as a, as a quote unquote professional sport? Here's the real challenge. You know, people like to compare
1: professional running to a lot of other sports and they they always go to the big sports basketball baseball football and that's not fair right because most of these football players or basketball players or baseball players aren't working really hard to build their own brand because they have a multi-billion dollar entity doing it for them but when you're in a semi-pro sport like track and field and we all know USATF isn't doing a whole lot to help build the athlete's brand. You got to take it into your own hands. And so it's a kind of a double-edged sword. I say, no, the athletes shouldn't be, really be required to prop up the sport or make it more popular by being bigger versions of themselves or sharing more of themselves. Their job is to run fast. But if you want to make money, you're going to have to do that also. you know. And so the, the athletes that get paid the best do both. They run fast, but they're also willing to share a lot of themselves with their fans. Um, so you can do it either way. You can do the Lolo Jones way, um, and make millions as a, as some, as I would, you know, at this point I'd almost call her more of a, of an internet celebrity. Mm -hmm. Um, or you can make millions as a, as a really great runner that has zero, uh, online presence like Galen Rupp, you know, and that, and, and then there's the hybrid where you're Allison Felix and you're making a lot of money because you're not only fast, but you're really great with your
0: fans. Kind of piggybacking off of that, do you think there is a transparency problem in track and field in terms of not only what athletes are making and how to value themselves, but just in terms of what people talk about in the sport in general, whether it's doping or contracts or how people are getting into meets, any of that stuff? Do you think there's work to be done in that area?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm all for transparency. I think transparency in nearly everything is beneficial for everybody. If, if everybody knew what everyone else was making in track and field, it would it help the, the negotiation process a lot. Um, if everybody knew the inner workings of these uh, governing bodies like IAAF and USOC, it would help a lot. There is a massive, massive transparency problem in track and field. And it, I, really, I, I, don't, I really can't emphasize this enough. It's a semi-pro sport. Professional running is is really not a professional sport at all. It is a hodgepodge mix of meets and road races, a few agents out there. And uh, everyone's just kind of fighting over scraps. And that's a shame because it really could be a really wonderful professional sport. But the people that are in power don't want to see that happen because they they would lose the the gravy train that's putting money in their pocket.
0: Yeah, And throughout your career, you were never afraid to speak your mind, um, speak out against injustices or things that are wrong to the point where, I mean, you, you literally gave up your spot at the world, world championship. Um, you know, because you felt that, um, athletes weren't being treated fairly. Um, now that you're retired from athletics, will you stay quiet or will you stay involved in the sport of track and field and continue to be a voice of some sort? Or is, are those days behind you now?
1: For me, in any, Role that I am ever in, whether it's as an entrepreneur, uh, you're just a, a has been sitting in the stands. My loyalty will always be to the athletes. You don't have a sport without the athletes, and I know exactly how hard they work, and I know exactly how undercompensated they are. So I'm always going to be on the side of the athletes. Um, but you know, as an entrepreneur, I have a job as as my new role. You know, the CEO of RunGum. My my responsibility isn't to the athletes primarily; it's to my company and my employees. Um, but I I have found this really wonderful way. Coach Sam and I found a wonderful way to give back to this community through Run Gum, and we're doing it through corporate litigation. Of all ways, um, we are still in a lawsuit with USATF and USOC, trying to steal back some of that advertising space that they've confiscated, so that we can start paying athletes. We don't want every, we don't we want to work with athletes directly. We want to write a check, and we want every cent of that to go straight into the athletes' pockets. But the way that the regulations are written, it makes it next to impossible for us to do that. Um, and we're fighting those regulations in court.
0: So I feel like I've been pretty down on running with these last couple of questions, but what or who's exciting you in professional running these days?
1: Well, I mean, there's so many great stories right now. Um, I think, you know what, I'm going to, this will sound, maybe it'll sound classic Nick Simmons, but. I've never said this before. What excites me the most right now is watching athletes say F you to the NCAA. Talk about a bunch of crooks. The NCAA has had this scam going for so long. And now in the age of social media where athletes control their name and image like they've never been able to before, they're leaving D1 athletics in droves because they are tired of the NCAA Squishing them underneath their thumb and taking every single cent, not just taking every single cent, but taking their name and image for themselves too. And I'm so proud of these young athletes saying, I'm done with you, NCAA. Um, Ryan Trahan is a is a young kid that I really admire. And he was uh at Texas AM, I believe. And he recently said, Why am I why am I giving NCAA all of this when I get nothing in return? And so he left, he left that D1 program and I'm so proud of him for doing it. I'm not saying that's the right decision for anyone, everyone, but I'm saying, listen up NCAA, you're operating in the 20th century and it's the 21st century now and you need
0: to, you need to get with the times. Would you say that's probably true of most bigger governing bodies right now that they're operating in the past and we're starting to see some of the foundations crumble, whether it's NCAA IAAF, USA Track and Field, FIFA. I mean, you name 100%. it. Yeah,
1: hundred percent. You know, you think about
0: the modern Olympic
1: movement, and 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 that's pretty much what governs all Olympic sports, including track and field. Uh, domestically, track and field is still governed by the 1978 Ted Stevens Amateur Sports Act. So, break that down. The 1978. So now we're forty years removed. Ted Stevens was the senator that sponsored it. Amateur Sports Act. Every single Olympian standing on that track isn't an amateur. I guarantee they've taken money um, to get to that team. Mm -hmm. So why are we being governed by an amateur sports act? It's antiquated. It needs to go away. It needs to be rewritten. And all of these governing bodies need to come to terms with the fact that they can't take every single dime going through these sports, that athletes are going to demand their share of the revenue.
0: Let's hope that happens for the sake of of all of these sports that we care so much about. Because right now, um, athletes' careers are being compromised, uh, fans are losing interest, and it doesn't seem like it's a good situation for, for anyone involved. So we can only hope that things continue to evolve on that front. I want to switch gears kind of completely again and go back to your career um, as a professional track and field athlete. We talked earlier about how... You came out of Willamette as as a good collegiate runner, but certainly not a world beater, but you improved quite a bit. I believe you had run one one forty eight or one forty nine for the eight hundred meters out of college. Um I
1: was uh I was a one forty eight guy starting my senior year of college and I, I ran uh one forty five eighty three about two days after I graduated.
0: Okay. And you know, that launched you into a professional career with the Oregon track club elite. And even from there, you improved quite a bit. You won national titles, you made Olympic teams. What would you pin that progression as an athlete down to that improvement?
1: Every time I made a major improvement, whether it was, you know, in middle school or as a season pro, it was lifestyle changes, hundred percent, just rededicating myself to the sport. Um, you know, in college, I was part of a fraternity and I drank three nights a week and I ran a few miles when I felt like it and, you know, was still able to win the dual meet against Lewis and Clark. So I was happy. Um, but my senior year, I said, I really want to see how good I can be. I dropped, a, dropped the fraternity, you know, moved into a quiet apartment, uh, upped my mileage to 70 miles a week, lived at altitude. I, I did everything I could to see how good I could be. And lo and behold, I shaved three seconds off my eight hundred best, you know, um, Then I decided that, Hey, I, I want to join a team. I want to be surrounded by people like myself that want to be great. I want the greatest coach, you know, and Frank Egliano at the time was the greatest coach in track and field, um, for my event. Um, you know, and I rededicated myself once again and went from being, you know, a good 800 meter runner to a world-class 800 meter runner. Again, um, Every single time, and I I can keep going down the the list of each time I rededicated myself, and those were when I had the major breakthroughs. And so, most young athletes, when they say, "Well, I want to be really great," I'm say, "Well, how bad do you really want to be great? You know, are you drinking? Because that's not really." And I'm saying this as a guy who has drank my entire career. There is a there is a time and place for it, but how much are you drinking? You know, how how much are you really trying to be great? Are you willing to give? give up grades? Are you willing to give up time with your family? Are you willing to give up a lot of things that a lot of people aren't willing to give up to be great? I was. And that's one of the things that
0: that allowed me to maximize my my talent. The other thing that's really impressive about you is you always seem to be at your best when it mattered most at the Olympic trials, national championships, uh, global championships. What do you attribute that to? 50%
1: 50% fantastic coaching. And I was really, really lucky with the coaches that I had. They were fan- they were just great at peaking me at the right time. And 50% mental. Um, I'm a gamer. And anyone who trained with me in my 12-year career would laugh when I say that I'm really bad in workouts. Because they used to say, I just kick your ass every single Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. But I can't beat you in a race. And it's true. I was a really lazy we really lazy in workouts, but when it came time to race, especially if something mattered, I just could take it to that next level. And some people, some sports psychologists would argue that that was my secret weapon that I, I only dug deep maybe four or five times a season. I'd, I'd give you nine, I could give you a 90% effort, maybe even a 95% effort, but I really only dug deep the, the few times that it actually mattered. And that saved me both mentally and physically. Allowed me to have a much longer career.
0: Okay, that was my next question. You just answered it. Um, What's the performance that you're most proud of in your track and field career?
1: By far, the 2008 Olympic trials. Not the fastest I ever ran, not the biggest stage I ever ran on, but the most pressure I ever faced in my entire life was at the 2008 Olympic trials. And overcoming those nerves, overcoming that pressure, and PR-ing in a in a really memorable way, by far my, my most memorable race and the one I'm
0: most proud of. Your fastest race, I believe, is still the 2012 Olympic final in London, which, for all intents and purposes, was the fastest 800-meter race of all time. Rhodesia won in sub-141, which was just insane. I mean, you would run under 143 and weren't on the podium. Take me through that race... Um, you know, just the moments before it. And then, you know, those, those two minutes on the track and what you were experiencing during that time and how you felt about it afterward. Yeah,
1: it's tough. It's a bittersweet memory for me. I, on the one hand, I ran faster than I ever did in my entire career on the biggest stage. You know, I really brought it that night, but it wasn't enough to win a medal and it would have won a medal in every other Olympics up to that point. Um, you know, so it's it's a hard pill to swallow. But on the other hand, I have to be proud of what I was able to accomplish. I can only control what I what I can control, and that was running the best that night. My coach at the time, um, Mark Rowland, said, I think this was like literally right before I started my warm-up that evening. He said, Nick, you're not gonna beat David. He's too good. He's gonna run the world record tonight, and you just you can't do that. I'm like, Well, this is a great pep talk coach. <laughs> and And he goes, but that's okay, because what you're gonna do is you're gonna run a perfect two-second differential. You're gonna go out in 50.5, you're gonna come back in 52.5, and that'll be 143.0, and you're gonna be the Olympic silver medalist. And I said to myself, I can do that. I I know I can do that. And not only did I do it, I actually found an extra five hundredths of a second. (laughs) I ran one forty-two ninety-five, but it wasn't good enough for a silver. And and I remember just hanging my head on the track and just thinking, I'll never be an Olympic medalist now. And it was a tough pill to swallow. I walked off the track and had my uh, spikes dangling behind me. And I saw Coach Roland and I thought he'd be pissed. I thought he'd be really mad because we both knew that that was our best chance at a medal. Um, and he just gave me a huge hug and he said, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for letting me be a part of that. You know, and that was that was as good as a medal. Honestly, a a guy like Roland doesn't give out compliments like that real frequently. And to get that was, uh, it was, it was one of the better moments of my best moments of my career. Um, and it made everything all right. Kind of like we, we did it, everything that we could control. We controlled, we did everything we could to win a medal and the cards just didn't come up right for us that night. And that's okay. That's all you can hope for in sports, control the things that you can control. And and, uh, you know, it was a really special moment for coach Roland and I to be a part of that. I re- and I, I know what he means now. I, I'm, I'm so grateful that I was in that race. Um, even though I didn't get a medal, it was an honor to be a part of the greatest 800 meter race that that's ever been run.
0: That's great. Two more things. Um, I want to touch on before we split here. You've talked about Coach Roland, talked about Coach Gags. He most recently worked with Coach Danny Mackey uh, at the Brooks Beast. Let's talk about each of those three gentlemen and what you learned from each of them uh, and how they influenced the trajectory of your career.
1: Well, like I talked about uh gags uh, you want you mean my main coaches right
0: yeah gags. your main yeah, yeah. your main coaches, yeah. gag the head and-
1: the head coach and just to, for so everyone knows when you see an olympian on the track there's there's a dozen people that went into making that olympian and i could spend uh you know a dozen hours talking about each one of them but um let's just go down the three head coaches that i had as a professional and the first one being frank gagliano who is called the godfather of track and field and Um, you know, he's, he's a badass. He's this, when I met him, he was a 70 year old guy who'd coached more Olympians in middle distance than anyone else in America. Um, he had this reputation for being kind of a hard ass, but you know, also a teddy bear. And I met him and I just clicked with him instantly. I said, I love this man. And this is like my grandfather. I'll do anything to, to make this guy proud. And he'd bark at me on the track and then take me out to dinner and give me a big hug. You know. And he's just uh, he really was exactly what I needed at that time. And his mentality of let's, let's make you a great US runner that makes teams was what I needed at that time. Um, when he retired or, and left the OTC um, in 2008, he left us in good hands with Mark Rowland And it just so funny how, how perfect everything worked out. Mark said, Nick, you're great, but I want to make you a world medalist. And I can't do that today. I can't do that tomorrow. Probably can't even do that in a couple of years. It's going to take a, you know, a four to five year outlook to make you, um, the short stocky kid from Idaho, a, a world beater. But he was patient and he was willing to take the time. And he did just that. He, he took me from, You know, I think at the time I was ranked maybe 20th in the world and, and at the peak of our, of our career together, I was ranked number two in the world in 2013 and won a world silver medal. Uh, so he really, all my best years were with Mark Rowland, not that 2008 wasn't a great year, but my years of really believing that I could be a world beater, um, were, were with Mark Rowland. And then, um, when I left Nike and joined Brooks and started working with Danny Mackey, it was a totally different mentality. It wasn't like, you know, Roland was so decorated and, and so wise and so experienced. And Danny wasn't, he's he's too young right now. I think Danny will go on to be as good or better than Mark Roland at at that age, but he's just so so young. He has many cycles to go through. But the one thing that Danny had in spades was humility. And he was so willing to listen to me. And I was so willing to listen to him that we developed this this reciprocity, not reciprocity, this back and forth um, where we could talk through any, any situation, any idea, back and forth on training. Um, you know, I trusted him and he trusted me. And we were able to win a U.S. title, my sixth U.S. title, actually. I was able to win a U.S. title with each one of those coaches. Um, they're all great coaches, but I, I don't toot my horn a lot, but I will in this case. I was really willing to listen to them. And they were really willing to listen to me. And if you don't have that back and forth, it typically doesn't work. Um, my coach in college was a guy who said, not Coach Sam, another coach in college was a guy who said, do it because I'm the coach. And I said so. And I basically just said, Hey, you can go straight to hell with that attitude. And I I never got along with him. Um and it never I never reached my potential in college because I couldn't have that back and forth with him. Uh so I'm I am, I just can't. <laughs> I can't express gratitude enough for those three men who helped me so much over the course of 12 years.
0: Yeah. And I think that same principle applies whether you're an elite athlete or you're an age group athlete who has a coach, you've got to have that trust. You've got to have that, you know, that relationship that is unshakable. Um, and you've got to have that belief I think in each other, or it's just not going to work. Um, and I think your, your stories are certainly evidence of that and the fact that you were able to you know win national titles under under all three coaches uh speaks to the importance of not only those relationships but you trusting in them and them believing in you exactly and let's not forget the puppet master who was there to
1: oversee it all too so coach sam behind the curtains there <clears throat> is making sure that every transition from college to gags gags to row row to danny and then danny to you know, old, retired middle distance runner. Those were all seamless transitions because Sam was there doing the work.
0: Last question for you. How would you like to be remembered throughout your athletic career and now beyond your athletic career as you throw yourself into other endeavors?
1: I think as an athlete, I'd, I'd most like to be remembered as Mr. Consistency. Um, when it came time to step up, on the days that mattered, I always brought it. You know, I, I won six U.S. titles, uh, five in, of those in a row. I made every single world team I ever tried out for except that last one. Um, you know, I, I just am proud of my consistency. I was never the best. I definitely was not the best by any means. But I played the hand that I was dealt about as well as she can play it. And I, I'm really proud of that. As an as old has-been, I, I would like to be remembered as a great entrepreneur and someone that gave back um, to the communities that were important to him, whether it's this incredible community of Eugene, Oregon, um, that we're able to give back to, the running community, um, my family. I, I want to be an entrepreneur that isn't in it just for a buck, but is out there to make a difference. And it probably doesn't seem like that, right now, because um, we're still in grind mode. And I'm always worried about making sure I can make payroll and, and get my employees paid. But I want people to know that, that Sam and my vision for this company is, is one that makes a really lasting impact on the communities that are important to us.
0: Awesome. Well, I thank you for your time today. Okay. Wish you the best in the rest of your preparation for the Eugene Marathon. And finally, where can listeners keep tabs on you online and follow your Marathon Training Adventures and Entrepreneurial Adventures and Your Outdoors Adventures?
1: Uh, Yeah, great question. So I'm across all social platforms at Nick Simmons, Simmons with a Y. Um, NickSimmons.com is where I'll uh, I'll make a lot of my announcements, including my announcement on May 1st. Um, Also on YouTube, as Nick Simmons, I put a lot of videos out. And you can follow me through RunGum um, as RunGum CEO, uh, RunGum.com at RunGum. And please go to RunGum.com and sign up for our newsletter. I put a lot of blogs out that announce what I'm doing. Uh, We try to have some really great resources out there for people to try to help them run the day. So um, Mario, thank you for the time. And I I really appreciate it. It's always
0: fun talking to you and your questions are always so thorough. This was a great interview. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate all of you listening to this podcast. You can follow the Morning Shakeout on the sign up for the newsletter um on the website, the AM Shakeout on Twitter is where a lot of my content gets pushed out. And if you could uh go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review for the show. That helps us out. And if you want to support the morning shakeout, you can do so on patreon.com slash the morning shakeout. So thank you to everyone and we'll see you next time.